You can relax, Christian, because Jesus is not going to show a movie of your life when you stand before him. Jesus is not going to show a movie of your life when you stand before him. Think about that. If that happened, what a terrible way to start eternity. Who wants a movie of your life being played for all to see? Who wants what you did last week to be shown on a big screen in high definition for all the world to see? Not me. And I am going to assume not you either. The good news that we celebrate here at Grace every single week is that Jesus cannot remember our sins. That'll take a load off, won't it? I grew up fearing that Jesus was going to show a movie of my life for all to see. You know why? Because, do you remember the show, the movie Flash Gordon came out in 1980? I, 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 those are my favorite movies growing up. Soundtrack by Queen, you know, really good. Uh, Flash, ah, he'll save every one of us. Remember that movie? There's a scene where Dr. Zarkov, where they're going to like delete his memory. And all his life is just flashing forward on the screen. And eight-year-old Benji Magnus watched that and I thought, that's what it's going to be like when I stand before Jesus. They're just going to show everything that's happening up here. Everything that I've done is going to be seen for everyone. And so I was paralyzed for a a long portion of my Christian life thinking this is what's going to happen when I stand before Jesus. Everybody gets to watch my life. All the wicked, evil things that I've said and done. That's a terrible way to start eternity, isn't it? Instead, because of Jesus, we will hear these words when we stand before God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And no one in that moment, when Jesus says those words, no one is going to think, you're right, God. I am good. I was faithful. Give me a sec before I enter into your joy because I'd like to pat myself on the back. No one's going to do that. Why? Because we know that it's all of grace. Because we know that not only are we saved by grace, but any fruit that we have or any good that we do in our lives is all of grace too. In fact, we know that we've been bad, not good, right? We've been fickle and not faithful. So we will find zero reasons to be proud of ourselves on that day. Our only confidence before the judgment seat of God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to sinners like us. That's it. And so, Christian, hear and receive these gospel-rich heart pounding, spirit-lifting, whole-person-encouraging words this morning. God can't remember all the bad things you have done, and he won't forget all the good things you do. God can't remember all the bad things you've done, and he won't forget all the good things that you do. If you are a Christian, united by faith to Jesus and in union with him, then everything that you have ever done against God, everything you've ever done against his glory and against his law, 
He can't remember. And everything that you have ever done for the good of others and for the glory of God's name, he will not forget. Now, of course, Jesus is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows your sins. He knows all the bad things that you have ever done. He can tell you exactly how many times you sinned on any given day of your life. But if you are in union with Christ, God dealt with your sins at the cross. When Jesus was condemned on the cross... You were condemned with him. When he died, you died. God judged your sins at the cross, Christian. Your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. That was your judgment day 2,000 years ago at the cross. And because of that, your sins are poof, gone from God's memory. And now, all that he remembers are the good things that you do by his grace. The good things you do by his grace for other people and for God's glory. And that good news is exactly what the Corinthian church needed to hear. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Corinthians were being told by the super apostles, that group of false teachers who had invaded their church, they were being told that they had to obey God's law in order to earn their forgiveness. They were being told that they had to earn God's favor, earn God's smile, earn God's grace. And that's bad news for any suffering sinner. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 9. Recall that Paul has been speaking about suffering and about our bodies and how we're going to go be with Jesus. And so what is it like when we go be with Jesus forever? Well, look at verse 9. Paul says, so whether we are at home or away... We make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So right off the bat, notice that Paul just wants to please his heavenly father. That's all he really wants. And that should be the heartbeat of every Christian. If a Christian gets cut, they should bleed. I just want to please God because he's been so good to me. Of course, we don't do this very well, right, because we're sinners. But our heart's desire should be, yes, I know I sin every day, but I really just want to please him. But notice that it's joy and not drudgery and not fear that is driving Paul to want to please his Lord. What did Paul say last week? Two times, in verse 6 and verse 8, he said, We are always of good courage. We are of good courage. I I take heart, Paul is saying. Paul is full of good courage. He takes heart when he seeks to please his God. And so joy and courage drive Paul's desires. Not drudgery, not fear, not guilt, not I better obey because I got to stay in line. But there's this joy and this desire to want to obey God and to please him. So Paul says, whether he's alive or dead... At home in the body or away from the body, he just wants to please his Father in heaven. 
That's his heartbeat, and that should be ours too because God has been so good to us. And the reason that we should make it our aim to please him is because we are forgiven, because we have the verdict already. We'll talk about it in a moment, but on that final day, we will walk up to the throne of judgment with the verdict already in our hands, which reads, forgiven, acquitted, vindicated for Jesus' sake. But when we talk about pleasing God, we have to understand that our relationship with God is the determining factor in how we please Him. Our status and standing with God determines if and how we can please God. And so how are we related to Him? We are God's adopted children. And that, our adoption, that determines if and how we can please Him. Michael Horton is very helpful here. He said, we cannot please God as a judge, but we can please him as our father. In Christ, God is your father. We can't please God as judge because he demands perfection, sinlessness from every single one of us. Only Jesus can please God as judge because only Jesus is without sin. God is holy, he is perfect, and he demands perfection of every single one of us. But in Christ, by being in union with him, we are now accepted as God's sons and daughters, and we can please him. We can please our heavenly father. We can please him with our weak, feeble, and sin-stained good works. By the way, you do know that your good works are stained with sin, right? But even though they are stained with sin, if they are done in love, love for our neighbor and love for God, then they are beautiful to our Heavenly Father because they are done in His name and for His glory. So when Paul says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, that means two different things for the believer and the unbeliever. So judgment awaits every single human being born into this world when they die. They will stand before God, believers and unbelievers alike. But there's a difference between what happens at judgment for the unbeliever and the believer. There's a difference in what happens on judgment day when we stand before God for the believer and the unbeliever. So let's talk about each one. First, the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the final judgment will be a day of terror and fear and their hearts being exposed and ripped open. Every unbeliever will stand before God and will be exposed as sinners, exposed as rebels who broke God's law. It will be a time of fear and sadness for them. And they will give account for everything done in the body. But please understand this. When we talk about the final judgment, the final judgment isn't primarily about striking fear in the unbeliever. Rather, it's primarily the occasion where God publicly and definitively demonstrates his love for his elect people. It's primarily about his people being vindicated before the watching world. And it's primarily about God being glorified. 
We'll talk about that more in a moment. The judgment seat of Christ for Christians is what we are actually waiting for because we can't wait to see Jesus. We long for the public vindication that we will hear because right now the world mocks us. Right now the world laughs at us. But that day will be a day of vindication before the whole watching world. But the judgment seat of Christ will strike fear and terror in every unbeliever as they stand before their judge, King Jesus. And at the final judgment, unbelievers will finally be convinced of their guilt and they will be tried according to God's standard of righteousness, the law. And Jesus will pull out a book with every sin of theirs recorded. Every bad thing that they did in the body will be exposed. Any good that they did in the body won't matter then. It won't matter that they helped an old lady cross the street. That's not going to matter then. And so unbelievers will actually remember their sins when their hearts are exposed. And their sins, which are brought up at judgment, will prove publicly that God's sentence of judgment on them is indeed righteous and just. And they will be shown how they have offended God by breaking His law and trampling His glory under their feet. And so for the unbeliever, their sins will be remembered and brought up at the last judgment. And they will receive what is due for all the bad things that they did in the body. A movie of their life, if you will, will be played. And they will publicly be convinced of their guilt. Even if and as they gnash their teeth and spew forth vitriol and anger at God, even then they will know that they have sinned against the holy God, even as they experience eternal damnation in hell. Listen, if you're not a believer, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, then you need to be afraid when you stand before God. You need to be afraid now of the fear that you will have when you stand before God on that day if you're not trusting in Christ. It will be the scariest thing that you could ever experience. So repent. That just means change your mind. Turn from living for you and say, God, have mercy on me. And trust to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and be saved from God's coming wrath. Because you you will either stand before God and bear the penalty of your sin, or you can let Christ stand there for you as he did at Calvary to give you the gift, justification, gift, of righteousness. So repent. Turn to Jesus and be saved from the the coming wrath. And that's what unbelievers will experience for eternity. I was struck again this week just thinking about how unbelievers will react when being sentenced to hell. I was struck by eternity in hell this week. And it made me pray and it made me want to pray more and more for the many believers that I know. And so church family, let's let the weighty truth of 2 Corinthians 5.10 land on us and drive us to cry out and to plead with God to save our lost friends and family members. Don't give up praying. If you've kind of just slacked off a little bit, start again today. 
Saying, God, save that person. Save that person. We'll talk more about it next week because this is where Paul is heading in verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So let's pray for the unbelieving friends and family members that we have. But what about the believer? For the believer, the judgment seat of Christ will be a day of rejoicing. Let me say that again because I'm not sure y'all heard me. For the believer, the judgment seat of Christ will be a day of rejoicing, of hooping and hollering and jumping up and down and saying, I can't believe we made it. This is wonderful. It will not be a day of condemnation where Jesus dredges up our sins and we feel ashamed. Now, of course, that would happen. We would be ashamed if Jesus played a movie of our lives. But he's not going to do that at all. He can't. That is absurd. As J.I. Packer said, For God justified you with, so to speak, his eyes open. He knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you for Jesus' sake. And the verdict which he passed then was and is final. The idea of Christ condemning us is absurd. Shall he now condemn us? He, the mediator who loved us and gave himself for us, and whose constant concern in heaven is that we should enjoy the full fruits of his redemption? The idea is grotesque and impossible. The hope of the gospel is that when you trust in the perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, you will never be condemned. You will never be put to shame. Jesus condemning us is an absurd and grotesque and impossible idea. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's not a footnote on that verse that says, there's... For now, there's no condemnation. But when you stand before Jesus, condemnation. And then you go back to the now, no condemnation for eternity. No, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will never come to us and say, shame, shame. Shame on you for what you have done. I can't believe you did that. Shame on you. Instead, get this, we will be honored on judgment day. That's right. I said honored Think about that. In case you think I've lost my mind, at least uh, you, you might listen to Tom Schreiner, a noted, well-known uh, conservative theologian and seminary professor, commentator, author, etc. He says this, Just as Christ is the chosen and honored one of God and was so honored at his resurrection, so too believers will be vindicated on the last day. What is true of Christ is also true of his people. They will not experience the embarrassment of judgment, but the glory of approval. The phrase, will never be ashamed, therefore, is another way of saying they will be honored. We will not experience the embarrassment of judgment when we stand before God. Wow, let that sink in. We will not have an embarrassing movie of our sinful lives played before us as we stand before God. That is good news, y'all. And that is proof that God is good because I have said and done and thought some pretty wicked, evil things in my life. I've said some things that I'm embarrassed 
about. I've done some things that I'm embarrassed and ashamed of. And so I have said, thought, done so, 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 so many things that I am flat out ashamed of. Awful things, embarrassing things. If they're put on the screen right now, you'd never see me again. I'd delete my Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that, and you would never see me again. I would never show my face around here. If you knew some of the embarrassing, shameful things that I have said and done and thought in my life. And the good news of the gospel is that that record of mine is gone. Poof, it's gone. All because of Jesus, because of his finished work on the cross. And so is yours if you are in union with Christ by faith. All of the awful, embarrassing things that you are ashamed of, if you trust in Jesus, they are erased from your file. The hard drive has been wiped clean. And now when God sees you, he sees you in his son Jesus. And that's why you will never be put to shame. Instead, because of Jesus, you'll be honored. The honor is yours, Christian. It's unbelievable, but we have moved from experiencing shame to being honored on the day of judgment because we're in union with Christ. And so understand this then. When Jesus was condemned on the cross, you were condemned with him, Christian. When he died, you died. God judged your sins at the cross. Let me say that again because I'm not sure we believe it. When Jesus was condemned on the cross, you were condemned with him. When he died, you died. God already judged your sins at the cross, Christian. When you believed and you were justified by faith in Jesus, that was God's final judgment on your sin because it connected you to the cross. Justification is God's final judgment on your sin. When God declares you righteous, that is his final judgment on your sin. And that means then we are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. Now let that sink in. We are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. You don't believe me? Maybe you'll believe the Apostle John. Okay, what did he say in 1 John 4, 17? By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Confidence for the day of judgment? John really say that? I can't believe it says that. Confidence on the day of judgment? How can we be confident on that day? Answer, because we are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. Right now we are like Jesus, if you will, because we're in union with him. We're blameless, we're righteous, we're justified. As Jesus is right now before his Father, we are in this world. Righteous, and it will be on that day too. Isn't that good news? And that's why Jesus isn't bringing up our sins at the final judgment. As Martin Luther said, only the devil brings up forgiven sin. Jesus is not bringing up your sins when he sees you. Only the devil does that, not Jesus. What does Hebrews 9.28 say? Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those 
who are eagerly waiting for him. So when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to deal with your sin, Christian. He already dealt with that at the cross. He's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so it's true. God can't remember all the bad things you have done. And he won't forget all the good things you do. The word gospel means good news. We know that here at Grace. And if your sins are being brought up by Jesus on the last day, then that's not good news. God will judge all men and their hearts will be laid bare. But for the Christian, it will be a day of celebration, of getting good news. It will be good news because Jesus is not playing an embarrassing movie of our lives for the whole world to see. The sins of the ungodly will be remembered afresh, but not ours. And so on that final day, every human being will stand before God and every single human being will say these words. I don't deserve this. Every human being who stands before God on judgment day, that final day, will say these words. I don't deserve this. The unbeliever will hear God's righteous judgment and his righteous condemnation of their sin and they will say, I don't deserve this. I'm not a bad person, Jesus. I'm good. I'm a good person, Jesus. I don't deserve eternal damnation. But they will see and they will understand that it is true. They do deserve it. Even while they spew forth hatred and vitriol at God. But the believer will say these words too. I don't deserve this. The believer will hear God's righteous vindication and his commendation. And we will say, I don't deserve this. I'm not a good person, Jesus. I'm bad. I don't deserve eternal joy in your presence. I was talking about it with my girls this week. I said, we're going to stand there and we're going to say, Jesus, I don't deserve this. And he's going to say, I know you don't. You really don't at all. You don't deserve any of my goodness. You don't deserve any of my grace. But you know what? You got it. It's yours. It's free. Go enjoy it. That's what it's going to be like. God's children will be publicly vindicated on that day. We will hear the words, not guilty. We will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will be awestruck. And we will say, I don't deserve this. We will be acquitted at the final judgment. And so our acquittal lies at the heart of justification by faith. And it's all due to God's grace. But the heart of humankind resists grace, doesn't it? We like to think that I'm a Christian because I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart. And therefore, I'm saved. I did it. It wasn't grace. I made the decision. I prayed. But we know from our call to worship this morning in Ephesians 2, it's by grace, God's favor, that you are saved. You didn't save yourself. God saved you, Christian. You were blind, you were dead in your sins, and you were lost and hopeless unless the Holy Spirit came and regenerated you so that you could repent and trust in Jesus. But if you get over that hurdle, and it's a hurdle for so many people to realize that it's just God's grace that you're saved. You didn't do anything. Still... Christians think, well, okay, I'm saved by grace, but still I get a little bit of glory, don't I? What about my good works? I still get it. We're just so allergic to God's grace 
We just want a little bit. Just give me a little bit of glory, Jesus. Well, John Calvin wrote about this in the Institutes, which is his like, you know, big work on top of all the commentaries that he's written. And he wrote a letter to King Francis I, which is the preface of his Institutes. And this is what he says to King Francis I, talking about how in his day people still wanted to take a little bit of credit, give him a little bit of glory. And he says this, For what befits faith more than to recognize that we are bare of all virtue in order to be clothed by God? That we are empty of all good in order to be filled by Him? That we are slaves to sin, to be rescued by him. Blind, to be illumined by him. Lame, to be set on our feet by him. Frail, to be sustained by him. And to cast aside every motive for vain glory, so that he alone might be glorified and we in him. Now when these and similar things are said by us, our adversaries cry that this is to subvert some vague, blind light of nature, holy acts of preparation, free will, works which merit eternal salvation with their deeds of supererogation. They cannot therefore bear that the entire praise and glory for all goodness, virtue, righteousness, and wisdom should belong to God. Yet we do not read that anyone was ever blamed for drinking too deeply from the spring of living water. We must presume nothing of ourselves, so we must presume everything of God. We are stripped of all vain glory for no other reason than we might glory in God. It's all for God's glory. The unbelievers' day of judgment is ahead of them. The Christian's day of judgment is behind them. So now, by God's grace, we show up with verdict in hand because of the cross. So we will not be judged according to our sins because God took care of that at the cross. But that raises a question, doesn't it? If Jesus is the basis for our justification, what role do our good works play in the final judgment? What about the good works that we do? If we will receive what is due to us for the good that we did in our bodies, as Paul says here in verse 10, if we receive good for the good works we did in our body, then what will that look like for forgiven sinners on the day of judgment? Well, here's the answer. Our good works that we do in God's name for his glory, and for the good of other people, that too is all of grace so that no one can boast. And that's part of what John Calvin was getting at. Even the good works that we do, it's all due to God's grace. Any good that we do is because of grace. And Calvin actually explains this a little bit more. He says in the Institutes, Therefore, as we ourselves, when we have been engrafted in Christ are righteous in God's sight because our iniquities are covered by Christ's sinlessness, so our works are righteous and are thus regarded because whatever fault is otherwise in them is buried in Christ's purity and is not charged to our account. Accordingly, we can deservedly say that by faith alone, not only we ourselves, but our works as well are justified. Our good works are justified also because of Jesus. And then he says in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, 
Having thus received us in his favor, he graciously accepts our works also. And it is upon this undeserved acceptance that the reward depends. In other words, God rewards our good works not because they are exclusively good in and of themselves, because they are not. There are traces of sin even in our good works. So God doesn't reward our good works because they don't deserve to be rewarded. They don't deserve to be rewarded because there are traces of sin in all of our good. Let me say it again. There are traces of sin and self in all of our good works. And so our good works, when they're compared to God's standard in His holy law, they merit nothing. Our good works could not stand up to God's holiness. And so God enables us by his spirit to do good works by his grace and therefore his grace is magnified when he rewards us for our good works. Jesus gets the glory when he saves us by his grace and when he rewards us because all of our good works were done by his grace. And so for God to reward any of our sin-stained works is quite simply a testimony to his grace. And it's all because of Jesus. And so now, because we're his children, God looks at our good works and he takes joy and delight in them because of his son. And so when you do a simple thing, like show up to a prayer meeting and pray, or when you pray for one of our missionaries, it delights God. When you give financially to this church or to some ministry, it delights God. All that you do for God's kingdom, all that you do for God's glory, all that you do for the good of your neighbor, because you are adopted in Christ, that delights God and he will never ever forget it. Understand this, Grace. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. God doesn't need the good works that you do in your body, but your neighbor does, your family does, your church does. But God doesn't need our good works. He wants us to do good works so that we're a blessing to other people. So other people need our good works, not Jesus. He's okay. He doesn't need anything from us. But even though we are united to Christ by faith, our good works are still tainted with sin. The Holy Spirit is working through us to bring about these good works, but because we're involved in the process, we bring sin into the equation. You know this is true. Because when you, let's say you serve at Awana on Wednesday nights, and you work yourself up, and you're tired from working, you're like, Lord, help me, I'm going to go serve, I'm going to go minister, and man, you're full of joy, and you're there, and after an hour, you're like, oh gosh, I'm tired, you know, or some kid frustrates you, what happens to your motives then? What about all the good you did at that moment? Is it just erased? We bring sin into the equation. All that we do is tainted with sin. The Westminster Confession says this about our good works. It's very helpful. It says, and because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled. And mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Yet, notwithstanding, the person of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in Him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. 
Haven't you sincerely wanted to serve someone, but you realized as you were doing it, your service was accompanied by both weaknesses and imperfections? And so our good works are brought about by the Spirit of God. He's working in our hearts, but because we're involved in the equation, our works are tainted with sin and weakness and imperfection. But they're nonetheless accepted by God because of Jesus, because we're in union with him. Think of pleasing God like a child helping their dad fix the car. Both are under the hood, getting their hands greasy. The son holds the tools and hands the the dad the socket wrench. And then the dad graciously, because he loves his son, the dad graciously says, tighten that screw, son. And so the boy, you know, kind of does it. He does it. And then the dad says, let's see if if the car will start now. So dad jumps behind the wheel, turns the key, cranks it up, gives it some gas, and then vroom, vroom. And then the dad and the boy walk inside the kitchen to scrub and wash all of the grease and grime off. And the dad tells his wife, well, Benji fixed the car. That's what a good dad does. And that's what God does with us. That's what rewards are all about. That's what receiving the good done in the body is all about. Listen, Grace, God really does delight in our good works. He really does. Anytime you serve anybody, it delights God. And yes, as the Westminster Confession states, there is sin clinging to all of our good works. There's grease and grime all over them. And because we have all the grease and grime of our sin and selfishness all over our good works, we would not be able to stand before a holy judge and pass the test. But we don't stand before a holy judge. We stand before our Father in heaven. And he has even forgiven us of all of our greasy and grimy sins that cling to our good good works. He forgives the selfish and sinful motives for why we want to love and serve others. And so relax. Your good works are not and never will be perfect. But you know what? A good father doesn't care, right? A good father doesn't care if the son doesn't tighten the screw perfectly. It just pleases him that he was there and that he tried. And so God has received us in Christ. And now we do good works out of love for our father and out of love for those who need our service. So just go and serve. Go do good in the body for others. And your Father in heaven will be pleased. And you'll stand before him one day, and he'll look around at all the angels, and he'll say, well, Benji helped build the kingdom. And then he'll say, well done, Benji. Enter into the joy of your master. He looks upon our weak, sin-stained good works in his Son, and he is therefore pleased to accept them and to reward what is sincere, even though they are accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. He looks on them in his son. So there's no ground for boasting, right? And that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. The super apostles just boasted in their gifts. They thought they were great preachers. They wanted everybody to pat them on the back and tell them how great they were. They just boasted, boasted, boasted. Life and ministry was all about them. But when you understand grace, you say, I'm not even in the here. If I show up, I mess it up. If I show up, I, I, I bring grease and grime. It's all for him. It's all for his glory. We can't please God as judge. 
He demands perfection, but in Christ, by being in union with him, we can please him as our father with our weak, feeble, sin-stained good works because they proceed from the Holy Spirit and not us. If our good works are done in love, though they are tainted, love for God, love for neighbor, then they are beautiful to our Father. God can't remember all the bad things you have done and he won't forget all the good things you do. Christian, it doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. Jesus says to you today, because of my cross, you are accepted. You are forgiven. You're clean. You are washed. You are loved. My past is your past, and your past is mine. Your past doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to me. It's not yours. Let go. Get your grubby hands off your past. It belongs to me now. I nailed it to the cross. I threw it into the depths of the sea. There's no trace of it anymore. It's gone. You're mine. And I'm taking you to glory, public glory. So rest. I'm not going to show an embarrassing movie of your life for all the world to see because it is finished. And so it's all of grace. Grace. We're saved by grace. We do good works by grace. It's grace from beginning to end, and then it will be grace for eternity. Because what does Paul say in Ephesians 2? Verse 9. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The coming ages, plural. I have no idea what that means. In the coming ages, God just say, I'm going to show you more of my grace and kindness in Christ. And we're going to say, we don't deserve it, Jesus. And he's going to say, I know. I told you yesterday you didn't deserve it. But you know what? Enjoy it again today. And that's what it's going to be like. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for being so merciful to sinners. We don't deserve it. And that's why it's grace. Your unmerited favor. We can't earn it. We can't do anything. We cannot add to your finished work on the cross, even though we try all the time. Forgive us. Help us to relax. Help us to receive your grace and kindness. Help us even though, Lord, we bring sin into every situation. Help us to love you and love our neighbors for their good, for our joy, and for your glory. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.